when they look at trigger warnings, they have not been shown to have positive outcomes. The trigger warnings that we put in place don't help people deal with what they are trying to deal with. And in fact, quite the opposite. Even if the trigger warning is specific to what that person's trauma is, it still does not result in movement in a positive direction. So this whole idea that I can't be triggered, even if we're talking about trauma, this whole idea that I can't be triggered and that will help me, the research is really showing that that's not the case. And with anxiety disorders, of course, that makes absolute sense. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Robin. We're going to do a listener question today, and this is all about teens and mental health and their friends' mental health, which I think might be pretty helpful for quite a few listeners. I agree. Okay. So here is the question. Okay. My daughter has a friend she's known since kindergarten. She was given an anxiety disorder diagnosis by her therapist sometime in middle school. They're now sophomores in high school, and this girl seems to be given a lot of the wrong information you talk about. My daughter's having a harder and harder time staying friends with her. Her friend talks about her anxiety on a daily basis at the lunch table, but asks her peers to make accommodations for her due to her anxiety. She tells them all sorts of topics are off limits because they are triggers for her anxiety, as an example. When the other girls have offered encouragement for her to try something that makes her anxious, she shuts them down with the statements like, this is my brain chemistry, and this is what my therapist says, and this is clearly a concrete, permanent view of herself. My daughter has distanced herself from her over the last few years because she was enjoying her friend less and less. You've said this kind of behavior can be contagious. So I have supported this distancing, but now the rest of the girls are over it. They don't want to spend time with this girl. And I've known this girl since she was six, so it's hard to watch. I know she's having a hard time being a friend to others because she talks about her mental health so much. She's eventually going to get more isolated because I think the other girls have lost patience with her anxiety talk. And my daughter has asked me if there's something we can do, but I'm clueless. I've talked with my daughter about what I learned on your podcast using the friend as an example of what not to do. And that's been really beneficial for my daughter. And she has a lot of empathy for her, but I'm still sad about this girl and where this is headed. Is there anything my daughter or I can do or say? What a great question. This is so typical, unfortunately, because this is when we do the disorder, when we put the disorder in charge it actually creates more of what we don't want. And in particular, we've talked a lot about how anxiety and depression are both internalizing disorders, which means we do the bulk of the work of the disorder on the inside and how that just leads to more and more isolation. So there are several things that I would want to address just in this question, which I'm sure as you were reading it and as I was listening to you read it, 
I was just sort of like, oh gosh, oh gosh, oh gosh. Because this is an example of that permanent model that this is who I am. And so everybody needs to accommodate me. And this is why the accommodation model and when we say to anxious kids, you shouldn't be triggered. You shouldn't experience anything that makes you anxious. We have to do everything to make sure that you don't feel this way. One of the collateral damage of this is that all the people around you, your friends and oftentimes your family or other people, begin to get frustrated with your anxiety disorders demands. So not only does the anxiety disorder make you isolate because it's trying to avoid anything that triggers you, but it also means that the people around you start either walking on eggshells or they pull back. They feel like the anxiety is controlling them. I get this question a lot. People say, gosh, it feels so manipulative. It's not manipulative in that negative way of sort of, I'm trying to manipulate people to get power, et cetera, but it is trying to get what it wants. Well, you know what? This question I knew has so many things that sort of frustrate you as well in it. This is like a greatest hits of what you're trying to help shift. So let's take a step back and start kind of at the beginning, because I feel like this is a you probably know how much more common this is than I do. But I think let's start with a family like here's a family and they have a daughter and then you and I both know that the parents probably have a lot of there's anxiety in the household, right? In some unchecked way. And then the daughters showing those symptoms and then leads to, you know, whatever that moment was, I guess, in when she was a middle schooler, they were like, you're going to go to a therapist. Yep. And the therapist says, like, look, you've got anxiety. That is an important moment for this family that somebody says, you have anxiety, which I hear this language a lot. I've been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, right? So right away in that moment, does it become who this daughter is, who this girl is as a middle schooler, and then how she learns to manage it? Does it become her identity? And what is the information that she is going to get? So if you're a parent, though, let me phrase it this way to help the rest of us follow you. There is a path that you could say the parents likely followed. And then what is the path at that moment of the diagnosis that you would have liked to have seen? Place lighting doors here, like Gwyneth Paltrow movie. Yeah. So the path I would have liked to seen is that you go to an experienced therapist or somebody who knows how anxiety disorders work. And that therapist says, okay, so we've got a pattern going on here. Let's look and see how this anxiety works. Let's see how it's become so powerful in this family. Let's see if we can begin to step back and learn how this thing operates. And at that moment, and this is what I do in a first session, at that critical period of time, what I would want the therapist to say and what I'd want the parents to hear is that there are things that we're doing that can absolutely make the anxiety worse. And then there are skills that we want to teach and things that we need to do in order to make this less powerful. And one of the things we're really going to start to look at is how much, and I might in the family, how much is this family? And then I'm going to spread it out a little bit. How much is the school? How much are the friends working for the disorder? How many safety behaviors are there? And by safety behaviors, those are things that we do 
to decrease or eliminate symptoms, how many accommodations are putting in place. One of the first assignments that I'm going to give a family is I want the parents to track on paper. I want them to track how many times during the week or two weeks are they accommodating the behavior and how has that become the way unknowingly that they are trying to manage this. So what really sort of like I cringe when I read this is that this girl has been told, apparently, now we don't know, right? I'm not going to, because I get misquoted all the time, but this girl has been told and the way this family is dealing with this is that the goal is to not trigger her and the goal is to make sure that nobody says anything, talks about anything, does anything that makes her feel anxious. So the daughter in this, the listener's daughter, to her credit, has been saying, gosh, isn't that the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to support our friend by allowing her to step into situations with this supportive group of friends that is willing to love her and help her and encourage her rather than accommodate? We don't know what the therapist actually says. However, the daughter sounds like she's saying this is going to trigger me. This is going to trigger me. And I feel like she probably wouldn't have gotten there without the parents going along with that mindset. Right. It appears based on this that she is getting misinformation because either she's getting that misinformation because she's going to sources that are not accurate. So she's getting her mental health information from TikTok and Instagram, which I talked about a few episodes ago, or she's getting her misinformation from well-meaning adults that are trying to make sure that she doesn't feel distress. And so, unfortunately, if the message to this young person is the goal is for you not to feel distressed, then very sequentially, it means that now the world has to make sure that I don't feel distressed. Or if this girl says, I'm going to talk about this at lunch. My identity is now my mental health. I have to make sure that nobody triggers me. And instead of the goal being the girl is able to sit at the lunch table and tolerate all of the different things about being a high school student or a middle school student. Instead of that, the goal for her is I have to make sure that I control my environment. This is the biggest problem that we have right now, or one of the biggest problems that we have right now, is this idea that the way you feel better is to control your environment. The way you feel better is to make sure that nothing makes you uncomfortable. The way that you connect with people is to make sure that they know about your diagnosis, that they are schooled in the do's and don'ts, and that they are not going to do anything that's going to contribute to your distress. All of that is the exact opposite of what I would want to say to a sophomore in high school. And what I would say to the sophomore in high school who's got the anxiety is every time that you're sitting with your friends is an opportunity for you to practice because the goal, as paradoxically as it comes across or as weird as it can sound sometimes, the goal is to allow the worry to show up, allow the anxiety to show up so that you can learn how to manage it when it arrives. And what she's doing, unfortunately, is saying, I can't have it show up. I cannot permit anybody else to trigger me. And in order to do that, my anxiety has to be the leader of this group because that's what's happening. You know, you've always talked about anxiety being a cult leader. And when you told me that and I first heard you describe it as such, I had an image of a family working around the anxious child or anxious parent. 
everyone's moving around because this is what the cult leader said. I think I mentioned this to you at the beginning of another episode recently when I saw that 12-year-old girl in total distress because she wanted to ride a water slide while we were on vacation, but she didn't. That was, for me, a shift where I realized that the cult leader is fighting the person inside. Right. And that's why it's not really manipulation. It's like this cult leader piece of you is taking over you. Yes. And the problem with this, though, is that even when we know all this, right, even though these friends are empathic, even though they can try and be as supportive as possible, even though they totally understand that this is something that she's struggling with, this girl, you lose patience. And that's what's happening. Because what she is not saying to her friends is, look, I'm struggling with my anxiety and I'm really working on this. And so the goal at this point is for me to be able to sit here with you guys and I may have to take a break sometimes. I may have to leave. I may have to just sit here and take a breath or two to get my feet back under me. But I don't want you guys to feel as if you have to not be you because I'm working on my anxiety. And that's essentially what happens is that when a person, it can be a teenager, a child, an adult, when somebody says, I am my disorder, this is the most important part of me, and this is the most prominent part of me, and I am now going to dictate to the rest of you that not only do you see me as such, but you make sure that you act in accordance to this diagnosis. So let's take a break. And I have a good example of how we can work within this frame and maybe what these friends can do. But I think the most important thing is how do we help this young girl see that a diagnosis as an identity is actually going to get her the opposite of what she's looking for. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com 
and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. Okay, we're back. Now we're going to talk about this identity and permanence. And I know just for context, you've shared this on the podcast before. When you explore this topic, you get serious pushback from high school students. I get serious pushback. Not from all of them, of course. Like the whole auditorium doesn't stand up and walk out, but there's always a few that do. So somebody will end up crying in the counselor's office. A few times they come down after my talk and really unleash (laughs) on me, which I can handle, of course. I'm a grown-ass woman. I can handle that. But it's pretty interesting. And what are you saying that's upsetting them so much? So what I'm saying that's upsetting them is that this identity that you've taken on or the things I say is that there are things that you are doing that are making your anxiety worse or your anxiety better. We could say the same for depression. There are things that you are doing that are making your depression worse or better. This is not about blame, but it's about awareness of patterns and behaviors and accommodations and things that you do that make it worse or better. And that's where I get pushback because, and as this listener said, you know, she says, this is who I am. This is my brain chemistry. This is my identity. This is my diagnosis. And when we continue to support the idea, when we're talking about this, when our kids are learning about this, when we continue to support the idea that you don't have anything to do with this, that is a problem. And it's again, it's not about blame, but it's really about giving them the right information. Very simply, if this girl was sitting at the lunch table with her friends and saying, oh, I'm struggling with my anxiety, but you guys, here's what I'm working on. I'm working on you guys talking about whatever you want to talk about. And then my goal is to be able to sit here and engage in the conversation. I'm sure these friends would have a different response. But what these friends are experiencing is this person saying, this is who I am and you need to accommodate me. The message we want to give to young people 
if they're struggling with anxiety is that we have to be on offense rather than defense, which means that this is on the job training. This is in the moment retraining that amygdala by giving it new data. And the way we want to do that is we want kids to be open about this for sure. We don't want them to keep it a secret. We don't want them to say to their closest friends, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But we do want them to be able to say, I'm working on this and I don't want my anxiety to dictate our friendship, our relationship. I don't want my anxiety to dictate what you can do or not do because the result of that, just as we see here, is further isolation. Because what happens is the empathy wears out. It wears out after a period of time. If somebody is consistently talking about this, making demands, even if they're just ruminating in a negative way, if you read the anxiety audit, there are a gazillion stories in there about how people are doing their patterns. They're doing their ruminating. They're doing catastrophizing. I get that that's a pattern of anxiety. But many of the stories in there, what I'm trying to convey is that how does this impact the connection you have with other people? You know what I think about is you modeling this. You have shared that you have this thing about broken bones and that has caused like you have an anxiety reaction that has led to fainting. Yes, I have. It's funny because as you describe this, I think about the mindset and the ownership that you have of like, this is one of my things that I'm working on. And you do it with a little bit of humor. You don't tell someone not to speak, but there's like an ownership and acknowledgement. Like this sometimes can be a little tricky for me, but keep going. Like that's how you handle it. Yes. And what's interesting is that people learn about this. I mean, I talk about it. They hear me speak about it. I've talked about it on the podcast. It's not a secret I keep at all, at all. And so sometimes people will be talking to me and they'll say, oh, I remember this happened. I went to do a workshop somewhere and the woman running the workshop, who is this woman who I have had a relationship with in terms of doing stuff, she comes up to see me and she had fallen and broken her ankle. So she was in a cast and she goes, oh my gosh. I go, oh, well, oh no, look at you. What happened? She goes, oh, it was so crazy. I was walking down the street and blah, blah. And then she goes, oh, I'm sorry. I can't tell you about that. And I said, no, no, no. I want you to tell me about that. I want you to give me that information. What a huge difference versus shutting someone down and saying, I have anxiety about that and you can't tell me. Right. Yeah. And what happens is people try and be understanding about that. These girls are trying to be understanding. They've gotten so much information about mental health and how it's important to talk about it and how we don't want to hide it. And it's really good to be forthcoming about it. There shouldn't be any shame about it. They've gotten so much information about that. So they're probably sitting at this lunch table and part of them is thinking, you know what? We're supposed to be able to talk about mental health. Like it's okay that she's sharing this with us, right? So they really want to do what they're supposed to do. But what's tripping them up and what's tripping up this daughter is that she is not seeing her friend addressing the problem in a way that will actually make a positive difference. And she's seeing her friend, she's watching it play out with a great degree, it sounds like, of critical thinking and awareness. She's watching this play out in the exact way that she fears. So now she feels badly. So she's got this internal struggle inside of her and the mom has this internal struggle inside of them. They know that this girl is struggling. They know this friend is really suffering with this. And yet the actions she's taking 
are absolutely making it worse. One of the things that you bring up that example, here's a colleague in your field, she broke her ankle, right? So in that moment, she was like, oh, oh, I shouldn't talk about my broken ankle. Like that was her impulse is like, oh, I want to accommodate you. Yes. And instead you said, I don't want you to accommodate me. We are in a moment of connection. You tell me about what's going on with you and I'm working on meeting you there. Right. Right. Like that's huge because you're not letting your anxiety or those patterns or the content or whatever interfere with the connection. However, the opposite is I can't really talk about that. So then the woman who broke her ankle was like, yeah, and I see you too, Lynn. Well, and also now she feels badly. Say she walks up in her cast and I go, oh my gosh, what happened? And she says, oh, I broke my ankle. I fell off the curb. And then she goes, and she sees my face change. And if I said to her, don't tell me about that. And then right away, now she feels badly because she feels like she's crossed a line or she's caused me distress. But she probably feels badly the first time. But let's say you all worked at a hospital together. By the second and third time, she's going to start getting annoyed and not empathic, which I think is the appropriate response, right? Like, oh, the whole world revolves around you, doesn't it? Which is kind of what it happens. Yes, that's what happens. And that's how families get trapped by this. That's how they get sucked into this. This is how friend groups get sucked into this. And one of the things also that this listener said, which I think is really important, is she is wanting to be very explicit with her daughter because she knows that this behavior is contagious. She doesn't want her daughter to believe or to begin to adopt this way of living, which is if I feel upset about something, the onus is on the other people not to talk about it. The trigger warning, and I've talked about this in a previous episode, trigger warnings, when they look at trigger warnings, they have not been shown to have positive outcomes. The trigger warnings that we put in place don't help people deal with what they are trying to deal with. And in fact, quite the opposite. Even if the trigger warning is specific to what that person's trauma is, it still does not result in movement in a positive direction. So this whole idea that I can't be triggered Even if we're talking about trauma, this whole idea that I can't be triggered and that will help me, the research is really showing that that's not the case. And with anxiety disorders, of course, that makes absolute sense. It does not help me. When I did used to faint a lot and when I did feel like this was out of control and I didn't know what it was and I didn't know what to do, I walked around with a sense of hypervigilance, hoping that nobody would cross that boundary and worrying that I had to put that boundary up, which became harder and harder because I worked in a hospital and people tell me things as a therapist. It makes you very aware in not a connecting way, but these people are sort of at any moment, somebody could say something that would knock me out, you know, with me literally. That's why you talk about it always like a really anxious person or an anxious family their world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen to this poor high schooler is her world is going to get smaller. Here's the bone that I have to pick on this topic. And that's just because of my own background with, I've talked about my high school best friend who committed suicide. When parents hear the diagnosis for their kid and they want to keep it as a diagnosis and a brain chemistry argument so that they 
it's not about blame, but it's about accountability. And I just think you should talk about this again. You use the example of alcoholism. What do you do with this diagnosis and how do you be responsible about it? And I guess it's just so many parents it's so stressful when our kids struggle. Like, first of all, like when our kids struggle, it's very hard to just see the world in a stable place, right? Like we're only as good as our kid in the least stable position. So I just want to throw that out there. But when we know we have something that we have to face and we want to just deny our role in it or our role to fix it, our role to change, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's what I just feel so badly about it for other families. Yeah. Well, and I think it is really hard as a parent when your child is struggling. I mean, is that is absolutely, and it's scary, right? With all the information that we're getting, it's just scary. So you go into the mode of, I have to keep my child safe. I have to keep my child okay. I have to make sure that they are not harmed by other people because they're in such a vulnerable state. Or harming themselves. Harming themselves. That's right. And that's absolutely a legitimate fear. When we're talking about anxiety disorders, when we're talking about worry, when we're talking about avoidance, it is really, really important for parents to, one, get accurate information about what works. I mean, that's the thing about anxiety disorders is that we know a ton about them. We do. We know what works. We know what doesn't work. And so parents need to get accurate information. And again, my bone to pick with my field is that it really is surprising to me how many people are treating anxiety disorders that don't know how they work. That continues to frustrate me, but I'm trying to come at it in a positive way of like, let me do some trainings and let me talk about it. So parents get inaccurate information, get misinformation from all sorts of places. It is on the parent, right? Not in a blaming way, but in a responsible accountability way. It is on you to get accurate information about what works and to really look, and this is the hardest part, to really look at what you might be doing, not on purpose, that actually is contributing to this pattern staying so powerful in your family. So if you are modeling avoidance, if I was talking to the mom of the anxious student, the questions I would ask would be, have you learned about how accommodation and avoidance and trigger warnings increase anxiety? Have you learned about that? I would also say to this mom, are you paying attention with your daughter to how her anxiety might be leading to disconnection. Because the more that she puts her anxiety in charge of her friends, the less they're going to be able to connect to her. Are you talking to your daughter about how she can positively connect? What is she doing in her life to make sure that she's positively connecting? And that can be anything from Is she volunteering? Is she initiating contact with friends? Can you have a conversation with your daughter that says, I want you to go through your school day and not bring up your anxiety with your friends? Just one day. I want you to go through one day and not talk about it. Now, some people might say, well, that is denying who she is and that is not letting her be fully who she is. What it's doing is it's allowing the other parts of her to be amplified. Because if I have something I'm struggling with, there are people that I'm going to talk to about it. There are people that I know I can trust, but I'm not going to make it the topic of conversation 
with everybody that I'm interacting with. I would have a very direct conversation with this student to say, the more that you put this at the front, on the top of your resume, the more that you put this as the introduction to your identity, the more the other parts of you are not going to be able to bloom and shine and grow. What you focus on, you amplify. And I would really directly talk to this girl about that if I had her ear and I, if I had the mom's ear. And I would, I truly, I would say to this girl at lunch, no talking about your anxiety with your friends this week, right? And again, people would say, well, that's denying. No, no, it's not denying. It's a healthy way of letting the other parts of this girl shine through. Because when she begins to see herself globally as anxious, and this becomes her global identity, her friends are going to begin to see her as that too. They're going to lose track of all the wonderful things about her and the reason that they've been friends in the first place. But I do want to make some differentiation because it's important to do this. There are certain things that people struggle with that definitely have to do. We don't know exactly, but are definitely not like if you are diagnosed with bipolar, that is a disorder, schizophrenia and bipolar, where there is something going on in the brain. OCD has a strong genetic push to it. We know that if you are in a family that has a lot of addiction, that there is probably some genetic stuff, some genetic predisposition that puts you at risk. And the same can be said for depression and anxiety, although we know that the brain is incredibly malleable. And this idea that if you're depressed, it's a disease, or if you have generalized anxiety disorder, it's a brain chemistry issue, that's not really an accurate way to talk about it. But we do want to differentiate. Now, that said, say that you have a family that's full of addiction, like a lot of families do, then the goal is to make sure that as parents, you're working preventatively and you're really talking about this in an open way. And that's what Jessica Leahy wrote a book called The Addiction Inoculation, which is really addressing that. She is talking about how do we make sure that we are preventative and get ahead of this thing. So if you are in a family where there's addiction, if there's a family where there's alcoholism, you don't want to say, well, you know, this is just who we are. So I guess we're all going to end up going down the same road. If you have a family where depression is prominent, you want to start thinking preventatively. If you are a family that tends to be full of worriers, if you were raised by a worrier, you want to start thinking preventatively and talking to your kids about how it is that we can work on this so that it doesn't become your identity. Every person is going to go through a tough time at some point. It is hard to get through this life without having some chapter that's really, really difficult. And we want kids to understand that those chapters are not who they are. They are not defining them and they are not necessarily permanent. But the language that I hear in a lot of the wellness curriculums, in a lot of the stuff that's goal is to destigmatize is really giving the message that this is who you are and there's nothing you can do about it. I've thought of a fantasy curriculum that I want to talk about after our break. 
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Okay, let's get back to this conversation. So, Lynn, I have this fantasy that it involves Mr. Rogers. Oh, okay. So imagine if, and maybe there are schools that have this kind of curriculum, but if you think of the basic premise of Mr. Rogers, all of your feelings are real. They deserve acknowledgement, but they also can be managed. We normalize that it's okay to feel all these feelings. Like, honestly, adapt that to the teen audience. And like, why don't we do that? But the thing that I also feel like for teenagers, especially, how does a system identify the kids that are lacking the skills in order to feel connection? That's the thing that I think is so sad. How do we identify them? And then how do we give them skills, right? If you have kids who don't seem to be a little bit off on their own. There's an awkwardness to their behavior. Or there's in this scenario, a girl pushes away friends because she's talking about mental health towards that where you identify the people who need it most before their trajectory isn't very positive. And I talk about when I'm in schools and doing trainings for schools, I talk about that all the time. I talk about loneliness and isolation is a red flag. And if you see a child who's experiencing that, step in quickly. That's a place we want to start. Connection, connection, connection. There is a curriculum that some schools have been adapting 
And I've talked about this book before, The Permission to Feel in the work of Mark Brackett and his program. It's the acronym RULER. And I don't remember what all the letters stand for, but that's exactly what he's trying to do is to step in and work as early as possible on these skills of connection. I listened to a podcast this weekend when I was walking, and there's a guy named Scott Galloway who is really talking about the trouble that our boys are in. And it was pretty amazing. And I know he's gotten a lot of pushback on that because people are saying, oh, boys, now we're going to help our men, you know, because there's so much anger about all of that. But it was really his information and how he framed it up and what he was talking about as the mother of sons and this young generation of boys becoming men. I thought the stuff that he was saying was incredibly helpful. And so much of it had to do with connection and disconnection. What's the name of that program again? It sounds like every school needs it. It's the Ruler Program, and it's about emotional literacy. And the person who is in charge of it is Mark Brackett. He wrote the book called Permission to Feel. This stuff is so important. Obviously, the listener's question was about something a little different, but it's ultimately about connection. Well, that's what it comes down to, right? Because when this mother wrote in and she said she's eventually going to get more isolated, and I'm sad about this girl and where she is headed. This is why anxiety leads to depression so often. This is exactly the path. If somebody were to say, well, how does anxiety lead to depression in teenagers? How does that pathway, you know, how is anxiety the entrance ramp into depression? This is exactly what I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because these girls who are trying their best are really going to become frustrated. I had this happen with a client of mine, actually. She was really anxious and she was able in middle school to get a group of girls to really be her accommodation posse. If she was upset about something, they would surround her. She really didn't like throw up at all. So after a cross-country meet, they would make a circle around her to make sure she didn't see anybody throwing up. And all these girls felt like they were being so helpful and it was kind of they were taking on this cause and they were helping their friend. And by the time she moved through high school, these kids didn't have the wherewithal. They didn't have the patience. They didn't have the skills. They didn't have the commitment to continue to be her accommodation posse. Or desire. Or desire. Yeah. Even if there was a part of them that felt like that was a good thing to do, that they wanted to do and they wanted to help, it became impossible. And so that's really where we need to pay attention the question is, what does the mom and the daughter do about this, the ones that are witness to it? I don't know what kind of relationship the mom has with this other mom. I don't know if this daughter has the wherewithal to have a heart-to-heart -heart with this friend and say, look, this is what I'm seeing. That can really blow up, but these friends have to decide whether or not it's worth it. It's sort of like an intervention that we do with people that are struggling, right? You know somebody's alcohol use has gotten out of control, and so you have an intervention, and sometimes it goes really well, and sometimes it really doesn't. So this is a lot to ask of a sophomore in high school, for sure. But I think to the mom, I think what she is doing being able to use this as an example for her daughter, being able to talk about it openly with her daughter, perhaps giving her daughter a lot more awareness of how this thing takes over. I think that's a wonderful thing. It's going to help the daughter, the friend. It could go either way. Is there ever a time that a family like this has their moment where they realize this isn't working and they look for another approach? Yes. 
Because that's when they come to see you, right? Like, pathetically in those types of situations. Yep, for sure. They start to feel hopeless about it. What I often say is parents go for help with anxiety when sleep and academics begin to get impaired. Those are the two things their little kid isn't sleeping or when they start seeing trouble at school. And sadly, what often happens is that then the child gets to a point as a teenager, maybe they start getting really depressed. The place that I don't want this to go, which it often goes, is that then they get just another diagnosis. So now I have anxiety and depression. But what often happens if it becomes extreme is there are some really good programs, specialty programs that kids end up in. And there's a time of reckoning for the family to say, okay, so now we have to start learning about how to manage this. But oftentimes it gets really bad before the family finally says, oh my gosh, we need some pretty significant help. And then oftentimes they'll end up at that point in some sort of program that can help. It's a very predictable course, unfortunately, which I am trying my hardest to interrupt. I just want to tell you a little something because we did the episode on medical procedures and helping kids get through medical procedures. So I just want to let everybody know, just want to brag for a moment. My son ended up in the emergency room with a tonsillar abscess, which if you don't know what that is, it's when your tonsil swells to almost cutting off your ability to breathe and they have to go in and lance it. So this was the second time this happened to him. We're going to get those tonsils out. But Lynn Lyons sat in the mass general emergency room for nine hours. And during that time, somebody came in with a compound fracture in their ankle. There was a lot of discussion about it. A lot of broken bones. A lot of broken bones. And a lot of words like, well, we tried to pull it or they tried to shove the bone back into place. My son was <laughs> sitting next to me and he was like, listen to this, mom. <laughs> yep. And then somebody came in who had cut their thumb off with a table saw. <laughs> But they talk about it like they're talking about it. You can hear everything. And they're like, well, so the, the thumb is still attached, but it's really dangling, right? So I'm like, bring it on, people. And then when they finally went in and got the abscess, my son's abscess, I watched the whole thing. I watched. I was right there. I was looking. I was watching. So I'm just saying, people, as I've said many times, I was horrible. And on two Sundays ago, in the Mass General Hospital emergency room, I was killing it. You were. I just watched something similar with my daughter at a doctor's office. And it's like when you're the mom, you're like, oh, that pus is adorable. That's my <laughs> little guys. <laughs> there was a lot of pus. <laughs> if this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community. And we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.